Now, if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn once again to the book of Isaiah. This is the second in our short four-sermon series on the coming Messiah. Last week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 9. This week, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 11. Next week, we will be in the book of Matthew, looking at how Matthew applies for us yet another prophecy of the prophet Isaiah. And so we'll be looking this morning at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word, for the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, open our eyes. Open our ears. Open our hearts. That we might behold marvelous things in your word. This we ask. In Christ's precious name, amen. We are in the season of Advent, the season of Christmas. And the season of Christmas is a time of joy. We sing hymns of joy. We greet one another with greetings of joy, with smiles and hearty handshakes and hugs. But... At Christmas time, our hurt does not go away. What often happens is our hurt goes underground. We act as if because it is Christmas, everything has to be all right. And if we realize it, Christmas is a time of joy, but it is not a time of joy because everything is right with the world. The world did not magically become a better place last week. There's still suffering and pain, sickness and sin. 
But Christmas is a time of joy because we celebrate the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah is the one who can and who will make all things right. In this prophecy of Isaiah, we see the predicted Messiah, the Christ, who is able, willing, and engaged to bring blessing. He is the one sent by the Lord to renew the world, to banish sin, pain, and sorrow. He is the promised deliverer that we need. Now, God inspired Isaiah some 700 years before the birth of Christ to tell us whom he would be. Last week, we saw the Messiah's name. This week, we see the Messiah's character. And so I would like us to see three things from Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 11. First, we see that Jesus, the Messiah, is the one equipped for the task. He is the one equipped for the task before him. Secondly, we see he is the one engaged to bring blessing. He's not only equipped, he is engaged with the world to bring blessing. And then finally, he is the one who is eager to spread the blessing. One equipped for the task. One engaged to bring blessing. And one eager to spread blessing. Let's begin then by looking at Jesus Christ who is foretold as the coming Messiah who is equipped for the task before him. Now, the very first thing that we notice from this text is that Jesus is equipped because he is the fulfillment of the promises of God. That's the first thing that strikes us from verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesus is the promised one, promised from long ago. Isaiah looks backward, not forward initially, to Jesse. Now, we have to remember the context in which Isaiah is speaking, because this is how prophecy works. Prophecy has multiple layers or levels of fulfillment. It has its ultimate fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ. But it is a prophecy of hope for the people of Isaiah's day at well. This prophecy was given nearly 3,000 years ago. And it is just as true now as it was then. That is the nature of the Bible. But we should not forget the immediate context of Isaiah. That will give us some insight into the substance of the prophecy. So when Isaiah spoke these words, wrote them down, it was a prophecy given to the people of God in the midst of dark times. The empire of Assyria was threatening Judah. It was expected that they would attack Judah and destroy it, just as they had done with the kingdom of Israel. But God breaks in to the gloom of the hearts of the people of Judah with a word of hope. At the end of chapter 10, he reminds them that he is more powerful than any human kingdom. That he will strike down Assyria and rescue his people. That he will turn their sorrow into joy. And then he brings forth hope. Hope in the form of the Messiah who will change everything. It is important for us to see just how much we need this hope. And so God points us backward 
before he points us forward. Why does he point us back? Shouldn't we turn away from the past and its pain? What benefit can there be to looking back to the past? Well, God through his prophet Isaiah points us backward by mentioning Jesse. There is a reason for this. He wants us to see that our future hope depends on a past reality. And that past reality is the promise of God. God never just asks us to believe that things will get better. No, instead he points us to his promises. He doesn't offer us vague thoughts about the future. No, he always points us back to the past, to the promise that he has made, to the promise that he has fulfilled, so that we know we can trust his promises. And so he goes back here at the beginning of this chapter to one of the clearest expressions of the promise. He reminds us of David, who is the original shoot from Jesse. David was the great king of Israel. He was blessed with great success by God. After God had given David victory over his enemies and peace, David determined to do something for God. And so we see this story in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David wanted to build a house for God, who was dwelling at that time in a tent. But God told David that he did not need anything from David. In fact, God told David that God would build David a house. He would establish a house and a kingdom forever through David's son. Now, how would God do that? How could David's son be greater than David? How could God establish an everlasting kingdom through David's son? It's only possible through the fulfillment of this promise. We understand this when we see David in Psalm 110 call his son Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. He acknowledges that his son would be greater than he is. And so here it is with the prophet Isaiah. This branch, this son that is described here is the Messiah. The long ago promise to David is fulfilled in the Messiah to come. Now who is that Messiah? Well, it's Jesus. Because Jesus was asked this very question. You can find it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 20. They came to Jesus and they said, How is it that they say that the Christ, that is the Messiah, can be David's son? Do you know how Jesus answered it? He pointed them to Psalm 110. When David said, My Lord. Now we know that this Prophecy applies directly to Jesus. It's actually what was announced by the angels in Luke 1, verse 32. They announced that Jesus will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Luke reminds us that this prophecy finds its fulfillment in Jesus, the Messiah. Now, the other thing that this text does for us is it points us not only back to the past, but it points us to the humble beginnings of the Messiah. Now, we all know the story of Jesus being born and being laid in a manger. 
that Mary and Joseph had no place because they were traveling for the census, that he wasn't born in a mansion, that he wasn't born to rule with gold and silver all around him. Now notice how Isaiah describes the Messiah here in verse 1. He is called a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Does that strike you as odd? Do you not expect here to see a shoot from the stump of David? Because, of course, David is the one that we know. We don't really know much about Jesse. As a matter of fact, we really only know two things about Jesse. First, that he was David's father. And that second, in his little town of Bethlehem, yes, that's where Jesse's from, that he lined up all of his sons, except David, to try to determine whom the prophet Samuel would anoint. So all we really know about Jesse is that he's the father of David, and his one time in front of the scenery, he messes up. Now, this is very different. Isaiah points us to Jesse here to remind us that the Messiah would not come as a glorious, honored king, because that's what David would have been associated with. David was the great king. In fact, that's why so many in Jesus' day missed him, because they were expecting a Messiah to come as the second David. They were focused on a great, powerful king who would pick up David's warrior mantle and would drive the Romans before them. That's what they expected. So instead, Isaiah points us to the nobody in that line, Jesse. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the story of Jesus begins in a humble place, in the little town of Bethlehem, in a manger. There's another thing that we should not miss in this passage. The shoot comes from the stump of Jesse. Now what do you think about when you think about a stump? Have you ever been on a piece of property where all of the trees have been cut down to stumps? You know what it looks like? It's a very desolate place, right? It is lifeless. There's nothing growing. It's very different than a forest that is thick with trees and branches and leaves. We don't associate life with a stump. But that's what Isaiah points us to. The Messiah will come from Jesse's line, and he will come from the stump of Jesse. He will bring life from death, where we think there is no hope, where we think there is only death, where we think there is nothing that could possibly solve our problem, that is where Jesus comes from. He brings life and hope out of hopelessness and death. Where there seems to be no life, Jesus comes. And look at the end of verse 1. The branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It's not just the life of Jesus that comes from the stump. Jesus comes bringing life, bearing fruit. And everyone who professes faith in the name of Jesus is a part of that fruit. That's why Jesus is called the firstborn among the dead. Jesus did not just come to bring hope and to show it in himself. No, no, he came to bring life and light to a people. People who were hopeless Lost in sin. That's where life comes from. Now this is important for us to see this Christmas. 
Jesus is not just the baby in the manger to make you feel good. We like that, don't we? We like to look at young children and, and get a sense of, of encouragement, even when there's no basis in reality. That, my friends, is why Baby Yoda is taking over the world this month. But Jesus is not just a cute artifact. No. He is the Messiah who brings life from death. No matter how hard your life is for you now, no matter how much pain you had, no matter how hopeless things look, you have hope in Jesus. He is the one sent by God to bring life and hope where there seemed to be none. Are you trusting in Jesus to bring you hope this Christmas? Now, this hope is not a vague, shot-in-the-dark hope. It is a hope founded on who the Messiah is. And so the other thing that Isaiah describes for us in Jesus being equipped for the task is Isaiah describes the Messiah as being perfectly equipped for the task because he is filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord, Isaiah says, shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So the Messiah is given the Lord's spirit. He's not just given extra power or extra ability. He is given the spirit of the Lord. The spirit of God, who is God himself, rests on the Messiah. And so this Messiah is marked out as one who is distinct from every other person on earth. He is not just a man, the son of David, but he is God himself. Now, Luke picks up on this as well in chapter 1. When the angel comes to Mary and the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Isaiah predicted that. 700 years before that angel spoke. Now, this resting of the Spirit upon the Messiah is not just a temporary measure. The Spirit is permanently upon him. There were several people in the Old Testament who had the Spirit of God come upon them only to then depart. They had the Spirit come upon them for specific tasks like the building of the tabernacle or the giving of certain prophecies. But not so the Messiah. The Spirit rests upon him, takes up residence with him. The Messiah is perfectly equipped for the task. And the Spirit shows us how the Messiah is equipped. Isaiah describes the Spirit's work through the Messiah. He is first has the spirit of wisdom and understanding. So he has wisdom. That is the ability to think about life with insight and to apply that insight to life. That describes Jesus and his work. He has understanding. That is the ability to look to the heart of an issue, to know the needs of his people. He's not fumbling around in the dark, but he is perfectly applying his knowledge to our needs. Jesus has a spirit of counsel and might. That is, he has counsel, which means he not only knows the right thing to do, 
but he makes the right course of action to carry it out. And he has the might or the power to see that through to its fulfillment. There is no gap with Jesus. He has perfect knowledge, perfect counsel and ability to carry it out, and perfect power to see it through to the end. What a Messiah we have. In short, the Messiah is perfectly equipped to meet the needs of sinners like you and me. That may be hard to see when we first look at the babe in the manger. But we have to remember that the babe is the king of all. He is the branch of Jesse. He is David's greater son. He is the Christ sent by God. Well, the second thing that we then see is that the Messiah is not just equipped. He is engaged to bring blessing to his people. There is no gap between theory and practice with the Messiah. All of his characteristics are shown in his actions. We see this first in the transition from verse 2 to verse 3. Verse 2 ends, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord are upon him. And then in verse 3, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So verse 2 tells us that the Messiah has a spirit, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And then in verse 3 we are told that it is the Messiah's delight to have the fear of the Lord. So the Messiah has a perfect relationship with God. There's even a play on words here that Isaiah makes. The word for spirit is also the word for breath or for wind. And ironically, the word for delight is the word for to smell to take in air through your nose. Do you see the connection? It's a play on words. The Messiah not only fears the Lord, but he also finds it his delight. He has absolute loyalty to the Lord, and that is foundational of who the Messiah is. It is the sweet savor of the Old Testament. It is the perfume of his life. He enjoys it more than anything. Men, you know what this looks like. You're in the house, and your wife is in another room, and she comes by and talks to you for a moment and lingers and then leaves. And then as she departs, you can still smell her perfume. And you just take it in. Because it reminds you of her. It reminds you of the one you love. You take joy and gladness in it. Now young people, you don't have to be married to understand this. Because for you it might be something more like this. When you walk into a room and you smell your favorite dessert. Apple pie. Chocolate cake. And it smells so wonderful, you almost just want to stand and smell it more than you even want to eat it. Well, well of course you'll eat it, but, but you, for the moment, you, you just take in that smell. Your delight is in it. That kind of thought is the way Jesus, the Messiah, views the Lord. The Lord is the one he has absolute loyalty to. He is the perfect example 
of how to walk with God. He is perfectly loyal to the covenant. He always does what God wills. And this is what we see in Jesus. After all, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then even when he was faced with the hardest decision of his life, in the Garden of Gethsemane, to go to the cross and to suffer and die, Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. We then see that the Messiah is engaged <coughs> to bring blessing not only in his relationship with God, but also in his relationship with people. We are told that he is not like other men. Look with me again at verse 3. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He's not like other men. <coughs> his rule is just and right. It is not subject to bias. It is not subject to manipulation. He doesn't judge or decide disputes based on circumstances. Now, doesn't that describe virtually every ruler of the world as one who judges based on bias or circumstances? Even the best of them are subject to flattery, to bribery, or simply wanting the best for those who are closest to them but not the Messiah. He is not swayed by what he sees or what he hears in a bad way. It is with righteousness or honesty, fairness, with true justice that he will judge. What that means is he will give the voiceless a voice. That's what Isaiah means when he talks about the poor and the meek. It's not that the Messiah is biased toward the poor and the weak. No, he is just he hears the poor. That's something which is not often the case in our world and was certainly not the case in Isaiah's day. The Messiah gives a voice to the voiceless. I can't think of a better example of that today in our society than the unborn. They are the definition of those without a voice. They are the true voiceless. But Jesus gives them a voice. He will give them justice. He will bring about a world in which the scourge of abortion, of murder, will be no more. His world will be just and righteous and true. We will not have to lament the state of our society. Jesus will rule with righteousness. And he will also do away with all injustice in our world. So much of our society today is fighting about injustice, but often they combat injustice with a different kind of injustice. They don't seek righteousness. They seek merely to gain the upper hand. It's all about power, they say. Not so with Jesus. He will bring about perfect justice. Then the third thing that we see about Jesus is eagerness to bring blessing is that the Messiah is faithful. If righteousness is conforming to the truth of God's word and his law, then faithfulness is holding firmly to that path. 
Faithfulness is not making exceptions. It's not looking for loopholes or excuses. And if we are honest, that is often what we do when obedience to the Lord gets very hard. We look for a way of escape. Not so with Jesus. He ever lives to do the will of his Father. He came to earth to do that. He lived a perfect life among sinners to do that. He died a death we deserved to do that. In every instance where you are not faithful, Jesus is faithful. And Jesus' faithfulness is related to our need to trust him. Because the word faithfulness means trustworthy. One who is entrusted, one who is honest and true. You can trust the Lord Jesus Christ because he is ever faithful. Notice also that faithfulness is his belt. Now, the belt was used to gather up a robe in preparing to act. In God's providence, our reading this morning was from John chapter 13, in which Jesus took the towel and he used it as a belt so that he could be freed up to serve the disciples, to wash their feet. That's what Jesus' faithfulness is. It is not a theory. It is very practical. Jesus acts on behalf of sinners. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't make them go it alone. <coughs> he is engaged on behalf of sinners like you and like me to save and to bless. Are you wondering this morning whether you can trust Jesus? Maybe you've never put your faith and trust in him. Or maybe you're having trouble believing that it would really make a difference if you trusted Jesus. Or maybe you're just weary here today, sad or heartbroken. You, you aren't sure that you have the answers, and you're not even sure if there are answers to the problems that are before you. You need to know that Jesus is faithful, that he is worthy of your trust. That is what Isaiah is calling you to right now. Trust Jesus with all you are and with all you have. He will never fail you. We've seen Isaiah describe how the Messiah is equipped for the task and how he is engaged to bring blessing. Now Isaiah moves on to the Messiah's kingdom. That is, the Messiah is more than just an example for the world. He is the one who establishes the Lord's reign on earth. He is the one who is eager to spread the blessing over the whole earth. The Messiah is to restore all that was lost. When Adam was created, he was to have dominion over the earth and its creatures. He was to establish harmony and to dwell in peace. But sin changed all that. Man and woman's relationship with God was disrupted. Sin brought about pain and agony in our relationships with other people. The world, as we look around, is an unjust and painful place. And of course, most of all, death reigns over everything in the world. From the grass of the field to those who are closest and dearest to us. Isaiah picks this up in verse 6 
with a picture of the Messiah's kingdom. He says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. Now there is no indication of time here, but from the other scriptures, we know that this describes the world not at the first advent, but at the second advent of the Messiah. It's something that we look forward to upon the return of Jesus. It is founded in the character of who Jesus is. Just because we don't experience it now does not mean it will not come with certainty. Isaiah describes a world that is restored and renewed. It is the lost Eden recovered, but even more so. It goes beyond even what we could imagine. Could you imagine the wolf lying down with the lamb, the leopard lying down with the goat? In our world today, you can't get the dog to lie down with the cat in the same room. How could natural enemies such as these species lie down? Well, it's because the Messiah's kingdom is a restoration of all of nature. The world the Messiah will establish is marked by all that we need. Peace, safety, security. Think about all that concerns people today. It's violence and conflict. It's fear and a lack of safety. And so people do all that they can to try to gain safety and security. They spend all kinds of money trying to secure themselves. They hide themselves away from the world to try to protect themselves. But they can never achieve the safety and peace that they crave. But Jesus will bring about just such a world. The world that's transformed by Jesus, the Messiah, is almost unrecognizable. Old hostilities and fears are done away with. The predator lives together with the prey. There is no danger or fear of danger. Death is a thing of the past. Even the lion will fill his belly with straw. There's no need to kill, to eat. The curse of Eden is reversed. Do you see this in verse 9? <coughs> Excuse me, verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. The child has nothing to fear from the serpent. That is not a coincidence. That is Isaiah taking us back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 and saying, that the greatest and first enemy of mankind will no longer be able to hurt because of what Jesus has done. He has made Eden eternal and permanent. He has established his people where Adam was not established. Isaiah is deliberately drawing on this motif from Genesis. Do you long for a world that's free from pain and sorrow? From fear and disappointment? One of the sad aspects of Christmas is that it reminds us often of the loss that we have experienced. It reminds us that this world is painful. 
my wife had an opportunity to meet church planters from the Mississippi Gulf Coast that I prayed for earlier this morning, Philip and Lori Seeley. Philip has been battling cancer for two years. And he came to Houston for treatment that was supposed to happen this past week. He was supposed to have gamma knife surgery. But when they did scans, they found out that he had 18 new aggressive tumors in his brain and in his torso. Now, I want you to imagine what devastating news that would be. And now I want you to imagine how devastating that would be at Christmas. And their hope is not in healing. Although we pray that the Lord would strengthen Philip and remove the tumors and it would be a miracle and he would be able to continue the planting of this church and his wife could enjoy him and his children could watch him grow old. Their hope is not in health because even if the Lord cures him completely today, he will still grow old and die. And so will you and so will I. Our hope is in Jesus and in his kingdom, a kingdom that never fades away. A kingdom that is eternal, where the world is set right, where we have peace eternally forever. The child who was born so many years ago in Bethlehem is the mighty Messiah. He is the prince of peace. The last thing that we see in verses 9 and 10 is that Jesus is not just my hope. He's not just your hope. He is the hope of all the nations. He is everyone's hope. That is why the Christmas story is a story that must be on our lips. It's a story for us to tell and to share with others. It doesn't just belong to us sitting in this room. It belongs to every man, every woman, and every child who needs hope. Everyone who is hurting, who doesn't know what to make of life. In short... Everyone. One manifestation of the Messiah's kingdom of peace that we see in verses 6 through 9 is that it will spread over all the earth. Look at the end of verse 9. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover over the sea. It's not just that there will be a small enclave of Christians where life will be good and the rest of the world is kept outside. The Christian view of the world is not a city with big high walls to protect us from the enemy. No, it is the Messiah spreading his rule and his kingdom over all the earth. Not that we will not hurt, but that there will be no more hurt. Do you see that in verse 9? There shall be no more hurt. An absolute statement. Not particular to a person. There will be no more destruction. All of that will be done away with. And the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like water over the sea. Can you picture that? Is there anything more comprehensive than that? What is the sea made up of? Water. Everywhere there's sea, there's what? Water. Exactly. What Isaiah is telling us is that just like the sea is completely covered by water with no spot uncovered, so the earth will be completely covered by the knowledge of the Lord. There will be no spot missing. There will be no place in need of reform. 
there will be no outliers. The Messiah will bring his kingdom over all the earth. Now see one final thing in verse 10. The Messiah stands, Isaiah tells us, as a signal for the whole earth. As a flag, if you will. A standard of the rule and the blessing of God. And the Messiah and his story are meant for others. Isaiah says, of him shall the nations inquire. Why? Because he alone has the words of life. Where else would they go but to the Messiah? Are you looking for Jesus today? Or are you distracted with all manner of things? Look for Jesus this Christmas. Because it is his resting place that is glorious. Let's pray.